From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Cody Fisher, founder of Footprint Development, talks to FNC reporter Brian Johnson. Fisher says he sees residential construction through the lens of a regular citizen with a concern for the environment. He discusses that development philosophy and weighs in on the drama surrounding the Minneapolis 2040 plan. All right. Well, I'm pleased to be joined by Cody Fisher, founder of Footprint Development, based right here in the Twin Cities. And um, just by way of a brief introduction, um, Cody has done some pretty cool projects, uh, some smaller apartment developments following the passive house design, and um, has uh, been in the business since what? How? How? I guess I'll just let you speak for yourself, Cody. <laughs> um, so you are the founder of Footprint Development, and um, so first of all, thank you for joining me. Thanks and, for having me, Brian. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your company, first of all, uh, Footprint, and, and kind of how long you've been in business and uh, the type of uh, projects that you pursue. Sure. Yeah, so I I started um, uh, in real estate development uh on my own about four years ago um kind of didn't didn't do it under the moniker of footprint development until i guess the last two years uh when i decided i I should probably have a brand and a web presence but uh started about four years ago um you know i i kind of i came to uh real estate development uh as kind of a through the back door as an urbanist i was just i i've lived in Chicago and Washington DC and London and these up uh, these great cities with great urban spaces that are really vibrant with street life and have have this middle level of of density that I was I found really appealing. Um, but I'm from Minnesota, uh, and when I when I moved back uh, with my family to the Twin Cities, it was just after Minneapolis 2040, the comp plan. Um, it was really groundbreaking from a land use perspective um, was was taking root in terms of actual uh, policy. And uh, I had uh, a handful of parcels that were um, that I had had as rental properties for a few years that were um, kind of uh, opportunities opened up for development on those as a result of the comp plan. Um, and, you know, so my interest was initially uh, from an urbanist lens, but uh, I also, when I had my first child nine years ago, became increasingly uh, alarmed about uh, the climate crisis and, and really interested in that from a, an advocate perspective. 
Um, and so when I got started in development, I it was I kind of discovered the really strong overlap between uh, urbanism, our housing crisis, and the climate crisis. Uh, and and that really uh, drove the the way I wanted to approach development. It's the reason I, I set out to do it on my own rather than uh, working for somebody else um, uh, straight out of the gate because I didn't see anybody building in a way that I think is is critical in terms of climate resilient communities, housing, and 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 carbon smart construction means and methods. Yeah, for sure. And I know we've written about a couple of your projects that um, I wanted to ask you about. There's the Solstice Apartments, which I believe is 23 units right here in Minneapolis. And then more recently, we wrote about a project that you're proposing um, 32 apartments um, at 3561 Minnehaha Avenue. And I believe both of those are passive house uh, yep. projects. Can you, first of all, explain a little bit what passive house means and, you know, kind of what exactly you're talking about there versus something like uh, net zero or um, can you walk us through that? Sure. Uh, so fundamentally, passive house uh, is geared towards uh, improving the, it's really about kind of the building orientation. Uh, so, you know, how the building Spaces directionally impacts how much heat it gains from the sun and how much it gives off. Um, it's about uh, building really airtight buildings and super insulated buildings to really compress down the energy consumption required to heat and cool the building. Um, and, and, and it's about occupant health. So when you build really airtight and really well insulated for energy efficiency, um, it's also very becomes very important uh, to have proper ventilation and um, for to maintain air quality, um, so uh, passive house buildings, uh, generally speaking, you know there's a range uh, to how much more energy efficient they are than a typical new construction. Uh, but in the multifamily space, my my uh, passive house buildings that you reference, they're designed uh, to be about eighty percent more energy efficient uh, than their uh, baseline of comparison, um, which would be other buildings that exist uh, in the surrounding area. So it's a extreme energy efficiency, which ultimately, you know, reduces the need for energy consumption, um, the utility bills that uh, folks are paying, um, and makes things more resilient in the face of, um, you know, electricity outages. So this this twenty three unit building, uh, the uh, Solstice Apartments uh, that you alluded to, um, you know, in the in the dead of winter, if it's an all-electric building, which is another important part of decarbonization and part of the way I design my building. The, if the uh, you know if the the electricity goes out for a few days in the dead of winter, just the the body heat from the occupants of the building is enough to keep the building warm and comfortable um, because it is so energy efficient and well insulated. So it's truly the building is a it's a heat battery in the winter, right? And so it's truly um, kind of. That's what I mean when I talk about uh, climate resilience. Mm -hmm. And and who 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 have you been working with on these projects? Do you have a, a design team and a, a construction team that you've been working with? Or yeah, so uh, the 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 Solstice Northeast building that uh, was with uh, Precipitate uh, Architecture and Design. Um, Abby Muser Her was the um, architect of record on that. Uh, she's a a passive house, a certified passive house consultant and architect. Um, 
And uh, kind of having having an architect with that uh, skill set uh, combined is really critical in the design process for a passive house building um, because there's kind of you build an energy model for the building which informs the design choices you're making, and then the design choices impact the energy model, and there's a cyclical uh, cyclical loop there. And so having having one person that can wear both hats. Um, really enhances coordination and you can have clear design goals and outcomes that are set right from the beginning of the project. Um, so you're, you're doing it all in a cost-effective way. Uh, and then Abby um, is also the architect on this uh, mini haha project that you referenced, but she's now started her, her own uh, design firm called the True North Studio, um, mm-hmm. but working with the same architect on that. Um, and I did have a, I did have my first project out of the, out of the gate was a, a smaller six unit building, mm-hmm. similarly, hundred percent electric built, super airtight and energy efficient, um, but not to a passive house standard. Um, it's easier to achieve the bigger, the building you build. Um, mm-hmm. and we could talk about that if you want, but, um, you get, you get energy efficiency benefits, the larger you build, um, that was with 10 K architecture. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I was driving a lot of myself, a lot of the high performance specifications on that. Um, but I do want to, I do want to mention one other thing that's really important. Uh, so my buildings, yes, they're passive house certified, which is it's all about occupant health, comfort, um, energy efficiency. You know, you can be next to the triple pane windows in the dead of winter and in a t-shirt and not feel a chill, right? These are really high performance buildings, but um, from a, a, a greenhouse gas and carbon emissions perspective, um, you can actually design a passive house building that's catastrophically bad for climate change. Uh, if you use really high emissions uh, insulating materials, um, all that, all those greenhouse gas emissions occur the day you build the building, um, and the energy efficiency gains are really spread out over many, many years, right? And emissions today matter more than emissions 50 years from now. Um, and, and so in the, in the first 10 years of a building's existence, 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions from that generated by that building come from the construction of it and not the operations of it. And so reducing what's called the embodied carbon or the carbon footprint from all the materials and the construction process, that's really, really critical. Um, and so all, all my buildings, I use specifications for lower carbon concrete mixes and insulation materials and other things to reduce that between we've achieved between 30 and, and 50% reductions in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the actual construction. And for all those developers out there that might be listening, uh, reducing the embodied carbon, um, it's really easy and it costs, uh, there's no marginal cost to it. So uh, it's something that we all should be doing. Yeah, I think the last time we talked, you talked mentioned that it's the, you're looking at the Concrete steel and insulation as yep. being the big. Uh, those are uh, yeah. Those are the the structural elements in the building are typically the biggest offenders from an emissions perspective, especially for most typical large scale multifamily developments. Um, insulation, so it's concrete, steel, then insulation is number three. But then as you move down the the building size into smaller scale buildings like my six unit, or if you build like a fourplex or what people call missing middle housing. Um, other things do become more important, uh, like uh, the, the type of gypsum wallboard that you use or, or the type of uh, material you use to wrap your building, building in. If you use a lot of brick, that's just as bad as using a lot of concrete. 
uh, and that has a bigger impact uh, when you have smaller buildings. So yeah, but the the biggest offenders are concrete, concrete and steel and insulation. And did you go through a certification process similar to LEED to get the uh, passive house recognition, or how does that work? Exactly. Uh, so there's two different certifying bodies for passive house buildings. Uh, one is FIAS. Uh, that's the one that I use. That's the Passive House Institute of the United States. Um, and the other one is a European-based um, uh, passive house organization. But they all drive towards the same uh, towards the same thing. They're just slightly different variations on it. Um, and what I really like about passive house is that uh, it is laser focused on energy efficiency, uh, occupant health and comfort, and um, and reducing emissions because they do factor in embodied carbon as well. Whereas a lot of the other certifications, I feel like um, you know they focus on tangential issues or you can get points uh, in lead, for example, on things that I think aren't as um, I guess as existentially pressing as as uh, you know as as something uh, like climate change. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not as passive house is not as, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same brand recognition, I think in the marketplace as, as lead. Um, but, but for for my, uh, in terms of building performance, reducing operating costs of the buildings that I have, um, and having an impact on like occupant retention, um, I think it's the best bang for the buck in terms of paying for, for certification and quality control and construction. Um, just looking to your, you, you touched on this briefly, but looking at your bio, it says prior to founding Footprint that you were a consultant in Bain and Companies London and Chicago offices and director of strategy at CPS. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and um, you know, sure. kind of yeah. what, what you did there? Sure. I mean, so like starting out, so I went to St. John's University um, and then went uh, for the first kind of decade of my career was in uh, kind of advocacy, uh, nonprofit work uh, in DC and uh, you know ultimately felt like I was tilting at windmills a bit with um, the work I was doing and not really feeling like I was making much of an impact. And so decided at that point to go to graduate school for an MBA, um, went to Northwestern there, really knowing that I wanted to focus on social impact, but also wanting to kind of uh, get um, I gain private sector experience and really develop my chops um, in terms of strategy, finance, operations, those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, studied uh, all that and then also took a handful of um, real estate finance and entrepreneurship courses while getting my MBA, but wasn't really finding the right way to pivot into that sector or folks that were doing it in a way that I found very compelling. And so at that point, it was the the best decision for me was to go into corporate consulting with Bain and Company. So it's a it's a, a really a pure strategy consulting firm. In the London office, I did uh, a handful of kind of organizational improvement operations, and then um, design and um, and uh, business small business strategy banking cases. So worked with. Uh, uh, finance clients, and then did some work also in the public sector, and then um, critically with our private equity group, um, kind of doing the commercial due diligence phase for private equity acquisitions. And then, um, yeah, then when we returned to Chicago, um, decided to 
um, that my stint in, in corporate consulting, I had picked up the skills that I was looking to pick up from an analytics perspective and, um, and was ready to get back into something that was really driving impact on the issues I cared about in, in cities. And we were living in Chicago and um, I thought the superintendent at Chicago Public Schools at the time, they call it a CEO, um, was someone who was really bringing kind of catalytic and transformational change to that school district. And um, so was recruited to join uh, the CEO's office there as um, in a strategy role. So was helping uh, drive strategic initiatives district wide um, out of the CEO's office there. Um, but uh, you know, that was always going to be a temporary thing. And I was still looking to actively get into the real estate because, um, you know, the issues at the nexus of climate and housing were really where my passion was. And mm-hmm. so when we moved back to Minnesota to have our third child and be closer to family, that was when I decided to make a pivot um, into real estate. Okay. And just kind of looking at the big picture right now and the, uh, real estate market, housing in, in particular, um, what do you see as some of the opportunities and challenges there? I, you know, we talk a lot about there, there is a need for more housing, especially affordable housing, but we've all heard a lot about the uh, challenges in the debt markets now. And um, how are you navigating that? And what do you make of that situation? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think important, important two bits of important context um, going into my perspective on that is that I, I am a mission driven developer. So the stuff I build is market rate, but it is generally speaking, attainably priced, um, Mm -hmm. is the way we design it and try to value engineer it. Um, and I'm only doing this in Minneapolis. Like I'm kind of, I'm very, um, I think of myself more like picking an area that I want to farm and do lots of projects in and help build and cultivate the urban fabric of our community here over time. Um, and I'm, you know, I build and hold the stuff that I'm doing. Um, so I have a, a slightly different perspective and also that, um, you know, the assets that I'm building, I think are going to be increasingly valuable over time as people care more about indoor air quality, whether it's the next pandemic or the rolling um, air quality alerts that we have from the increasing number of forest fires. Um, you know, that kind of building is going to be an increasingly high demand. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the Midwest and in Minneapolis in particular is well positioned as a climate haven over time as, as um, you know, migration and relocation patterns shift away from the Sun Belt and, um, you know, flood prone areas like uh, Miami and hurricane prone areas like that. So I have that kind of macro perspective on the types of assets I build in terms of, um, you know, the, the overall, you know, the headwinds situation, construction costs are still really, really high. They, you know, the, the fact that uh, interest rates have gone up and have stayed up and are going to stay up for the foreseeable future hasn't seemed to catch up uh, in terms of, of kind of correcting some of the, the, the imbalance. Um, you know, typically you'd think that uh, as financing costs go up and the business cycle changes that relative to rents and construction costs, those things tend to rebalance and shift um, where the challenges are. Um, and we're kind of at the stage right now where financing costs are high, um, you know, equity requirements are higher than they were a couple of years ago. Uh, construction hard costs 
are still very high. Uh, and, you know, and land values haven't really gone down at all. There hasn't been much of a correction in at least in terms of the these small single lot type projects that those type sites that I would be looking for. So those headwinds are very real. But fortunately, um, you know, because I am a mission driven developer, um, you know, doing attainably priced stuff that incorporates, um, you know, certified affordable units at 60 percent of area median income. This is for some portion of the buildings. Um, and then the really, the, the deep commitments on the environmental sustainability stuff. I've got a really great um, debt partner in Sunrise Banks here locally. As a CDFI, you know, they're uniquely positioned and mission oriented uh, in that they can invest, um, you know, really heavily to try to achieve some of the mission oriented outcomes that my projects incorporate. And they're really supportive, enthusiastic partner. Um, so. You know, I'm confident that you're going to be able to keep securing debt terms that make projects work to deliver market rate returns in our market that incorporate these sustainability um, and housing components that I'm trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Okay. We talked a little bit also just briefly about the uh, Minneapolis 2040 plan and um, of course, that's been in the news lately. We've reported on it, and other media outlets have reported about the recent um, court ruling uh, with the judge who ordered the city to revert to the 2030 comprehensive plan within 60 days uh, amid a challenge from um, some environmental groups and so on. But uh, what I guess, what do you what do you see as the impact of that? Um, you know, on the types of projects that you do and other sort of infill projects here in the in the city. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I think in particular for smaller scale, let's call it, you know, sub 40 or sub 30 unit types of infill projects. I think it's really devastating. Um, typically, you know, the the archetype of, of the small scale developer um, it's either people like me who just really like this housing typology and are mission oriented or, um, you know, or people who maybe are um, taking a crack at development for the first time. And, you know, there's a there's a lot of risk and uncertainty that they're not even aware of. Um, or maybe it's a general contractor that is kind of doing this and taking advantage of their kind of you know, extra or capacity or something like that. Um, but they're bringing a, a kind of a sweat equity component to to it, or in some maybe cost advantages. Um, but none of those uh, archetypes that I mentioned are particularly well capitalized. Uh, and and in general, um, you know, the, the 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 pursuit costs and the design costs that you incur um, long before you know whether you can build a project uh, just to get the entitlements, even under a regime that's supposed to pre- provide certainty, like. Um, the 2040 plan in terms of what the city wants. Um, you know, the those costs are substantial and uh, the risks, unfortunately, because of this ongoing lawsuit and the back and forth, um, you know, the judge ordering a stay and then that being, uh, or having a, an order to revert and then a staying that order and back and forth, um, you know, it, it, it basically, you know, I mentioned like it, throws a bucket of ice water over anybody that might consider doing something like this, especially at a small scale, um, who just can't absorb 
the that level of uncertainty and the extended time spans when you're you know putting the limited capital you have in um, to pursue a project. So I think it's it really puts the brakes on people that were maybe considering doing this type of thing. Um, you know, overall, I, yeah, I, the for for me, I'm in a position where so I just had that mini haha project that was um, granted approvals by the planning commission. You know, if I if I don't pull permits on it uh, within the next 60 days, if nothing changes, that project is basically just on ice until mm. uh, you know the lawsuit sorts itself out or the city um, does its environmental impact study. Uh, but then certainly the same groups that have sued the city about the comp plan will, uh, you know, probably sue the city uh, and call its environmental impact study into question. And so this is just going to roil on and on. And in my opinion, waste valuable public resources and slow down the addition of the critical housing that we need to continue to build, um, you know, both to keep between Minneapolis in particular an affordable city, which it is relative to most major uh, urban markets and to make it more climate resilient by concentrating housing where people want to uh, and work um, and, and play. Right. And, you know, if we, if we don't allow housing and greater density in places in our urban core, like Minneapolis and St. Paul, we're going to continue to see sprawl, um, which is going to drive the continued growth in the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, which is transportation. So, um, you know, it's a it's it's pretty devastating, I think, from an environmental perspective that environmental law has been twisted and distorted to do one of the most progressive environmental um, policies or sue the city that's pursuing one of the most environmentally aggressive policies uh, in the in the state. Um, So. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that the saga is going to continue for the foreseeable future. I think. Do you are you in a position to uh, pull a building permit soon for that project, or you, do you think you'll be able to get get it done? No, in unfortunately, it's just not realistic. Um, we're going to continue with design and moving in that direction. Um, you know, we just have a long way to go before the permit set is ready, and and pulling permits would require also a range of other. Um, you know, but we'd have to have a general contractor and some key subs mm-hmm. in place uh, before moving forward with that. So the timescale is not realistic for that. But um, the this lawsuit has seesawed back and forth with appeals and staying of past rulings from this judge um, to revert back uh, to, you know, to the 2030 policies. Um, so we're going to be ready to move forward when the windows of opportunity present themselves. Will you be looking at opportunities in other cities then if this continues to drag out or? Um. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, so St. Paul, um, you know, it, I started in Minneapolis because uh, the, the it, I felt that as a new small scale developer, the, the policy regime that had was coming in place created a level of certainty and a clear path towards entitlements and eliminating that Kind of upfront risk. Um, St. Paul is on the verge of doing that itself. Uh, they instituted a one to four um, unit, uh, you know, rezoning effort, and they've reformed the multifamily uh, guidelines as well in the zoning code. Um, and you know, is is in a position to in the very near future adopt 
um, a, a slew of policies that will really unlock this kind of missing middle neighborhood scale uh, infill. And so, yes, I'm actively looking at opportunities to do it in St. Paul. And they learned a lot of good, valuable lessons in terms of what's resulted in housing production and where there were some gaps in the Minneapolis 2040, um, uh, you know, policy uh, improvements. And um, I think they they worked with a really high quality set of uh, consultants to get a market-based approach to allowing some of the housing that they, they want to see here or they want to see in St. Paul that didn't really materialize with the adoption of Minneapolis 2040. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we touched on a few of your projects. Do you have anything else sort of in the works that you'd like to mention or uh, what are you working on now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I do want to say, like, I, I see my projects as, you know, I've talked a lot about uh, climate and, and the impact of the built environment on that. Um, I don't, I know that my projects at the scale that I'm working at are never going to have, they're going to be a drop in the bucket from the perspective mm-hmm. of climate change. So, you know, what I, what I want to do and what I've set out to do with these projects is use them as a platform to um, help push other developers and help show other developers that they can build extremely energy efficient buildings that are low carbon footprint in construction and generate market rate returns. Um, and, you know, and so I'm doing everything I can to, to share my specifications, everything I learned, open book with my performas and how I'm doing what I'm doing and how I make the numbers work with, with anyone who will listen and hopefully some big ones so that they, because um, if they just incrementally improve, it'll have an outsized impact. So that's something that I'm constantly working on, and I'm happy to share, um, you know, the, the way I'm doing what I'm doing with anybody uh, who is interested. Um, the other big piece uh, I'm working on from an advocacy perspective um, are these things called uh, point access blocks or single stair buildings. Uh, it's like basically just think of a single compact building uh, with four units clustered around a single stair. Um, it's, you know, universal building archetype uh, is older in North America and ubiquitous throughout the rest of the developed world. Um, but we only allow them up to three stories uh, in the United States because um, in the International Building Code Model Code, that's the that's the limit. Um, and there's some kind of historical reasons for that. Uh, but there are these single stair buildings are allowed um, throughout the world up to much higher heights. and um, what that does is allow for, um, I guess, thinner floor plate buildings um, rather than this typical uh, building typology of a double loaded corridor, which is a single long hallway with no mm-hmm. windows and really small, efficient units on either side of it, like a hotel, right? That's what most multifamily housing in North America that's built today is. Um, what these single stair buildings allow is for units that have uh, you know, multiple sides of windows where you can open windows and cross ventilate the units. It allows for thinner buildings to be built. So you can, you know, if you build around a single uh, stair, you don't have to have as much lot coverage or you don't have to have a 60 foot wide lot. You can have a 40 foot wide lot um, and get the same number of units on it. Um, and, and I think critically, it allows us to build, it allows those who can build them um, to build uh, family-sized units. We don't see units that are, you know, two or three uh, bedrooms in size because we have to allocate 20% of our built square footage to 
long hallways and stairways in a single stair building, uh, it's you only have to dedicate about five to eight percent of your square footage to what we call circulation. And so when you reduce all of that extra square footage, you can allocate some of it to larger size units, but overall you're reducing your construction costs and therefore the cost of housing. So I'm working with some state legislators this next session and with the um, through the administrative code update process to try to legalize single stair buildings up to six stories um, in Minnesota with the next building code update. So that is my my current project in addition to uh, the the actual buildings that I'm trying to build. Wow. Well, sounds like you're onto some good stuff there, some exciting projects and uh, good luck with that. Any parting thoughts before I let you go? Uh, no, I, I think I covered all the main things. I just appreciate the opportunity to, to, to talk a little bit about what I'm up to. And um, yeah, appreciate you reaching out about this. Appreciate your time. It's been a fun conversation and uh, good luck with your projects, Cody. Uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.